Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, your invitation to us is wonderful and amazing. As you say in your word, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, no resources or purchasing power, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remove the skepticism and doubt from our hearts today. Gift us with faith that we might hope in you. We pray that you will use this time together, that you will use your word to encourage and strengthen us, that we might grow and hope only in you. Speak clearly to the one who does not know you today, the one who is separated from you by sin, the one who is without your gift of life. We pray that you bring conviction, that you would bring new birth, transformation by the power and the working of your spirit in them. We thank you. We thank you in anticipation for how you're going to reveal yourself today, how your name will be made great, how we will be impacted and changed. And when we leave this place, we'll go forth with a song, Lord, a song that radiates out to all we encounter, that exalts your name, that makes much of you and little of us for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Kim Tate is both an author and YouTube video producer. Her personal story is quite compelling and worth considering. Listen to this brief excerpt from what she has written about her journey. This is what she said. It's one of, the most, it's one of my most vivid memories as a girl sitting on the edge of my bed, face angled toward the window, eyes peeled for my daddy. My heart would race as a new set of headlights approached. Maybe that's him before sinking as the car passed into the distance. Since I'd hold on to hope, still, I was four when my parents divorced. I looked forward to these planned out meetings, outings with my dad. Where is he? Did he forget about me? Daddy has always been out and about. All I could do was wait even as daylight turned to dusk and dusk turned to night. Tears would gather as I realized he wasn't coming. 
again. More than once, I thought, I must not really matter. He must not really love me. I was longing for a relationship with my father. We can all appreciate Kate Kim's heartache. The circumstances and the people involved may vary, but all of us have experienced a similar ache within the heart. She goes on to share that she chose an unhealthy pathway as a teenager and lived a promiscuous lifestyle throughout her college years. Ultimately, she got married, but continued to struggle with an emptiness inside. Then she and her husband began to attend a church where she heard the gospel, was broken by the truth, believed it, repented of her sin, and trusted in Christ. This is what she said about her transformation. What an unsurpassable gift for that little girl staring out the window, waiting for her dad and wondering if she really mattered. My heavenly father let me know that I could enjoy an intimate relationship with him forever. The writer of Psalm 42 and 43, which typically has been attributed to David in many cases, sounds eerily similar to that little girl looking out the window longing for her dad. Except in this case, something has happened that separated the psalmist from God. He tells us that he's looking out the window desperately wanting a return to that intimate relationship. To know what he's known in the past once again. Here's how he tells the story. He says, my soul is in exile. His soul is in exile. Now the word exile means to be barred from one's country, from one's land. Usually it's due to political reasons or it could be a serious transgression that's been committed that causes one to be put in exile. We read the Old Testament and we see where God exiled his own people because of their sin from the land that he had promised. The psalmist does not use the word exile, but his description is clear. And it points to this kind of separation. He's in a desolate place. It's barren. It's harsh. I'm panting. I'm exhausted. I'm out of hope. He has no hope. He knows only despair. His emptiness is striking. His life seems to hang in the balance. My soul thirsts for God. When shall I come and appear before God? He wants to know when I will see the face of God again. His circumstances are extremely dire. Like a man alone in a hot desert with no water or food, he uses the deer imagery to project this. A deer that's running for its life, fleeing danger, mile after mile after mile until it just can't go any longer. And it pants for water, hot, dehydrated, desperate for refreshment. And the only refreshment and nourishment that the psalmist knows is that which comes from his own tears. 
The physical trauma associated with dehydration is severe. Most everyone in this room has probably experienced some form of dehydration at times. You can become fatigued, dizzy. The heart rate fluctuates. The body overheats and then cools. The skin gets parched. You have severe headaches, nausea. The electrolytes in the body get out of balance and nothing works properly. You can't string thoughts together or complete sentences. He's very uncomfortable. He's lonely. He's afraid. He's oppressed. It's not physical dilemma that he's facing, but a spiritual and emotional one. He's in a dark, dark place. The darkness is consuming his soul and it has a smothering effect upon him. His soul is being pressed down under a great weight. He's in torment and anguish due to being in, ex being in exile from God. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to lead a mission team into a domestic trip here in the United States. We were in Kentucky, in fact, and we had an opportunity there to go for a little respite, and we visited Mammoth Cave State Park. It's a cavern, a stretch of cavern going, you know, long way underground. In the middle of the summer, it was a welcome place to be. Cool, temperatures pretty constant there. We gathered in a place, kind of a little mini amphitheater, if you will, with some seats, benches there. And the guide came in and there were electric bulbs, lights stationed around this place, bringing light, just like we have in our room today. And he said, I want to show you something. And so someone flipped the switch and the lights went out. And I don't know that I've ever encountered darkness that was as dark as that darkness. I took my hand and went like this several times and I could not see any movement with the eye. It was so dark that you could feel the darkness. It felt like some kind of a cold, clammy blanket being wrapped around you, literally beginning to suffocate us. It may not be physical, but this spiritual and emotional darkness is just as real and even more debilitating He's being traumatized and tormented. Where is your God? The voice says. Where is your God? Where is your hope? His soul is in exile. But this passage clearly is telling us something that we all are familiar with in the culture in which we live today. He's talking about depression. He's talking about an oppression that's ravaging his soul. The psalmist is wrestling with these issues. Now the difference between the two, depression comes from within, oppression comes from without. Depression is kind of something that occurs in our own thinking in many ways and oppression comes because of an outside force. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now, cast down means to be bowed down. It means to be pressed down. Think about, I know it doesn't happen around here often, but sometimes we get some snow in the wintertime or we get 
some ice or you see pictures or something on the television where the snow is heavy and you see the impact that it has as it clings to the branches of trees and those branches weigh down. Or if it's ice, you see the electric lines, the power lines bow and even snap these these power poles that support them because of the weight. This is the picture here. Why, O soul, are you being cast down under this weight? Why are you experiencing this heaviness? Now, there's a lot of talk in our culture today about mental disorder, mental disease. It's being used in many cases to explain away some of the things that are happening in our culture that no one wants to explain by talking about depravity and sin. And so when we have these inexplicable shootings or uh, doing harm to one another in ways that just defy reasonable thoughts, we begin thinking about mental illness, mental disorder. And so we've made a scapegoat out of these kinds of thoughts pertaining to heinous actions. I read an article, it's probably been close to 25 years ago now, talking about the danger that was lurking in the pace of life that we as human beings were living, are living. Just as the internet began to explode onto the scene and we were racing about multitasking as if that's some kind of badge of honor that we need to wear. And this article went on to say that human beings were not designed to burn the candle at both ends. We're designed, and scripture bears this out, we're designed by our maker for times of meditation, for times of reflection, for times of restful contemplation. Yes, we work, we do things, we're active, but then there needs to be time of reflection and rest and to consider and let let things simmer a little. We become our own worst enemy when we race about burning the candle at both ends. And as Christians, we need to carefully consider our priorities. What is important? What is most important, especially as it relates to our spiritual health and walk with God? Now, the clinical facts regarding depression are alarming. We see the evidence of it bearing out around us all the time. We see suicide making a rise in its impact in our culture. We see the rise of the need for counseling and medication for these kinds of issues. According to the Mayo Clinic, depression is a mood disorder causing persistent feelings of sadness. Persistent feelings of sadness. It's having a feeling that is stuck on a sense of loss of interest. Losing interest in things. Normally good things in almost everything. It affects how you feel, how you think, how you behave. And it can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems. It causes people to struggle with simple day-to-day tasks, activities. And it convinces people that life is not worth living. Essentially robbing us of any idea of a future. Certainly taking away any semblance of hope. It binds the person to helplessness, 
to a dark state of mind. Now, where are we going with this? Well, what causes it? What is the cause? Is it just simply we're too busy? Is that what causes it? I don't think we can exhaust the topic today, but there are a number of issues in play and most of them are spiritually driven. Most of them are spiritually driven. They're not intended, this, this is not intended to be exhaustive, but only indicative, I think. I think we can hit some of the important ones. First of all, our circumstances can be responsible. Circumstances can play into this impact upon the way we think and look at things, the perspective that we have. COVID-19 pushed people into isolation. It took control out of our hands. Not necessarily a bad thing, but how to deal with those things we had trouble with. Inflation, we hear it every day being hammered at us. Isolation, unwanted change, unwelcomed change. Our Western civilization is very susceptible to these kinds of challenges. And we put too much stock in our comfort and our materialism. When it's threatened or it's lost, then we have these negative feelings, ideas, thoughts, emotions. Sin, our sin causes feelings of guilt and remorse. And this leads us into an exile of the soul, unwilling to deal with the sin because it's uncomfortable. Ignoring it or pushing it aside or justifying it somehow. Not dealing with it properly. Not repenting of it and turning to Christ. Disobedience and the lack of spiritual discipline leads us to these dark places. Genetics can have an impact. You may have this showing itself in your family history where there's just something in the makeup of the personality that lends itself to dark moods. Declining or failing health can have an impact. Again, this points to a loss of control, enduring sickness. But life as we've known it is lost and can't seem to be regained. Motherhood. Depression is often associated with motherhood. There are many ladies who've maybe had a child conceived and lost that child in a miscarriage, which leads to times of depression and darkness. Or immediately after delivery, it's very common for a new mother to go through a time of depression or during the pregnancy itself. Grief. Grief ushers these dark moods into our lives as, again, losing a loved one or a way of life, something that we have valued greatly. Now, should these things, here's the question, should these things affect us as Christians? Or is this something that we simply should just rise above? Because there's, there's this unspoken thing, I believe, in our minds that says that we as Christians ought to be above these things. We ought to be beyond these things. We shouldn't be impacted by them. Is that true? I don't think so. Maybe in some cases, but I don't think so. Does it mean that we're unhealthy Christians? Christians. 
if we struggle in these areas? Does it mean that we are useless? That we are failing as Christians? Maybe, maybe not. How should believers think about these issues? The dark oppression, the depression that affects so many people in the world in which we live. How should we think about it? Well, I don't know what else to do other than to look at scripture and to know that this, these things exist in scripture and some of the people that we look to and even elevate in our ideas of what it means to follow God. Take Moses, for example. In Numbers 11, Verses 13 and 15, Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. Two million people, cranky, unhappy, in need of water and food every day. I guess that could make you a little bit depressed from time to time. But Moses tended to struggle with melancholy and anger as a person. It seemed to be something in his DNA, certainly in his experience of life, he had brought these things to bear upon his, his life in a more heavy way. Notice what he says in Numbers eleven thirteen through 15. They were complaining because they were eating the same old manna every day. Rather than thinking about, well, at least we're being fed every day and we have water every day, they were unhappy about the menu that God had chosen every day. Moses said to God, where am I to get meat to forgive all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Just kill me. If this is going to be my daily lot, I just prefer you kill me. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my own wretchedness. Job, Job chapter three. You know, we think of Job as bearing up under his suffering in an admirable way, and he did. I don't know anyone, don't think I've ever seen an example of anyone to suffer to the degree that Job did and managed to keep his eyes focused upon the Lord the way that he did. And yet, Job had his moments, didn't he? In chapter three, he cursed the day that he was born. Why, why was I born? This is my lot now. He too, he too did not see life worth living any longer, was ready to give up. Now his situation was pretty complex and understandably so, but he was devastated and confused by what was going on. We see, we see everything from this side. Job wasn't seeing anything. He wasn't privy to some of the conversations that occurred. Didn't understand. He dealt with unhelpful friends and a discouraging spouse. Elijah, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, more meaningful to me at this juncture in my life than many, especially in the Old Testament. But Elijah, a man committed to God, preaching the word of God, wanting to see reform come to the land, to see people turn from idolatry. Ahab and Jezebel were on the throne and they had 850 false prophets littering the land. 
That's a lot. Leading people in idolatrous worship. Elijah longed to see God honored. He had this pure, pristine, righteous motivation in his life. And he went up to Mount Carmel and there with God's leadership challenged these prophets. A face-off. Whose God is really God? And Elijah's God proved himself overwhelmingly. And Elijah led the nation in slaughtering, executing those false prophets, just as the scripture said they should be. Once they were proven to be false, they were executed. Elijah thought there was going to be this great revival breakout, that the people were gonna repent and turn to God, no longer hesitating between what's good and what's not good, no longer hesitating and caught in the tension between the false and the true. But having the truth clearly portrayed before them, they would throw off the faults and throw themselves into the arms of God and that they would rebel against Ahab and Jezebel's leadership. And so he ran back to the palace because he wanted a front row seat to see as God's judgment fell on Ahab and Jezebel. And what happened? Crickets. Nothing. The people were not motivated. There was no momentum toward returning to God. All he found was that Jezebel had posted wanted posters all over the city with his name on them. Not dead or alive, just dead. And he ran. The scripture says, then he became afraid. After facing down 850 prophets, facing down that which was false, it was when Jezebel announced that she was coming for him that he grew afraid and he ran and he ran like this deer in the psalmist analogy until he exhausted one servant and ended up out in the wilderness of Beersheba under a broom tree. And there he cried out to God and said, let me die. Now, I always find it interesting that Jezebel offered to oblige him but he didn't want to die at her hand. He was much more comfortable dying at God's hand, which I can commend. But what happened? Elijah's expectations simply didn't match God's plans. God's desire was for people to worship him, but the way he was going to get there was different. And Elijah didn't understand it, and he became depressed because it didn't work out the way he thought. What about Peter? Remember Peter? Jesus warned Peter, pray lest you be led astray into temptation. And Peter didn't, he didn't heed Jesus' warning. And he denied Christ. And he had so much disappointment in himself. Can you relate to Peter? I certainly can. How often, how often I have failed the Lord and been so disappointed, so discouraged, so despondent by my own failure. Thinking that I'm not worth anything any longer. I, I can't, he can't salvage me. He can't use me anymore. Peter demonstrated a pattern of failure in his life. And I imagine he was ready to give up. Judas, after all, hanged himself. And Peter went back to fishing. 
But it was there where the Lord encountered him and restored him gently, firmly, lovingly. And said, Peter, (laughs) do you love me? If you love me, go feed my sheep. That's what I want you to do. What a great story. What a great story in the rescue and deliverance of God. But the point is that so many people that we hold in high esteem who have followed God have struggled with these same things that you and I struggle with each and every day. It's part of being human in a broken world. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. What does that mean? Hope suspended, hope put off, hope ignored makes the heart grow ill. It has a bad way on the heart. How should we respond to these kinds of challenges? What should we do? Should we just lay down and take it? Should we just throw up our arms and go see the psychologist? Should we just go to the doctor and get a prescription? Now listen, I want you to hear me today. I'm not demeaning any of those things because they have their place. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I am saying that we should be deliberate, that we should be careful with these things. We should proceed with care, but but these things are not off limits. They can be very helpful and often are. There are many options for help, medications, talking to someone who can help you. But it's important you know who you're talking to. It's important to know what you're putting in your body and the effects it's going to have. And how does that work in God's plan? God's the author of these things. God God has blessed us with medications. God has blessed us with people who have understanding about how the brain works under certain pressures and stresses. So there's nothing wrong with seeking out help that God has provided. Reading material. But I would suggest to you that reading the scripture, spending time in conversation with God, that he's your best counselor. And the word of God is the tool he uses to counsel us. The psalmist shows us himself. He encourages us here to teach our souls to sing in the night. Teach your soul to sing when it's dark. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody wants to sing that. Well, I would take issue with that. Paul and Silas did. In the Philippian jail in Acts chapter 16, remember they had been beaten for for casting out a demon out out of a young woman that was very profitable to her owners, a slave girl. And they were hauled in and thrown into jail, sitting in the jail. And listen, it was not a nice place. Nothing more than a, than a hole in the rock in the ground that they were dropped into. Sitting in their own human waste. Open sores, beaten, sore, bleeding. And the scripture says what? About midnight. About midnight, they started moaning and groaning About midnight, they started deciding that they would sign anything that anybody wanted to put in front of them just to get out, right? That's not what it says, is it? About midnight, they started lifting their voices, singing praises unto the Lord. Now, that's a powerful imagery there. In the dark, 
of the soul in those terrible, horrible circumstances. They chose to lift their voices and praise the Lord. The psalmist says in verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. You know, this little phrase, as I pour out my soul, it's, it's emptying a bucket, you know? If you lose your keys, what are you going to do? You start looking, listen, this happens in my house all the time. I'm not going to tell you who. But when you lose your keys, what do you do? You start, you start going through everything, don't you? And if you suspect, if you suspect that the garbage pail was somewhere around or that you may have tossed it when you were tossing some of that trash that came in the mail into the trash can and you let go of the keys at the same time, what do you, you take the trash can out and you empty its contents and you start going through it, don't you? Frantically looking for those keys or a particular piece of paper that came in the mail that you may have thrown away. You need it. And so you start looking. This is the imagery he's saying. I take my soul and I pour out the contents and I go through it because I want to find out what's the root of this casting down. What's the root of this oppression and depression that's working in my life? We need, to, we need to find it when you're in spiritual exile. Pour out the heart. Notice how he responds to this dark season he's in. First, he remembers. He remembers two things. He remembers what? These things, what things? How I would go with the throng. I would lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. It's a time of worship. He remembers gathering with God's people and honoring God. He remembers, he rehearses these things when it wasn't so dark, when there was exultation, exultation flowing out of him rather than mourning. Second, he remembers you, he says. He remembers God. He remembers Yahweh. From a great distance, I'm so far. You feel so far away. Thinking about Hermon and Mizar. And this is an area up near Caesarea Philippi, which was in the northern part. Tel Dan, which is up at the foothills of Hermon, which was a long way from Jerusalem. He says, I feel so far from you, God. But I remember, I remember what it was to walk with you. To know the closeness and the intimacy. And he sings in the night of his soul. Now his song, his song is interesting. It has four verses, four laments and a refrain after each one. Now we just kind of broke down the first one. Verses one through four is the first verse. As a deer pants for the water, my soul thirsts for you. My thirst, my soul is desperate for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? My tears, my tears only have been my food day and night, my nourishment while they say to me all the day long, those, those who taunt me are saying, where is your guard? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how would I go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Yes, he says, 
His heart's grieving here. But then notice his, his refrain, verse five. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. There's no reason. There's no reason to be cast down. There's no reason to be cast down. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. Lament number two, verses six and seven. And my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Notice the change in metaphors here. He was in the desert, no water. Now he's got too much water. He's talking about the streams that come down from Hermon that form the Jordan River, the headwaters up there where it is, there are deep pools and there are waterfalls. And you can walk down to some of those places in the middle. It looks like a desert and walk down steps, three or 400 steps down and get down to the stream and there's a waterfall down there that you can't see from up top. But you get down there close to it and you can't hear yourself think. It's so loud. Stunning that there's that much water coming down. Great volumes of water, but it's not the answer. The deep and raging waters are doing violence to him. He can't find a place to get his feet on the ground. He can't stabilize himself. He's gone from the dry, the famished, challenged to the inner self to not being able to find stability. The refrain of hope, verse eight, the Lord commands his steadfast love. All night his song is with me. Can I show you something? Look with me in Isaiah chapter 30. I'm sorry, if I get a little excited about this, I mean, listen, this is, this is barking up my street. Uh, this is the alley I live on, right? I don't know if you do or not. Maybe you do and you just won't admit it. Isaiah 30, look at verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved... You, your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. 
And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread and the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of this great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Doesn't that pick up your spirits? It sure does mine. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. And to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Now, here we go. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one steps out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Am I just misreading that? We have hope. We have hope. What a great hope we have in our Lord. Lament number three, verses nine and 10. Why have you forgotten me, he says. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? He, he's saying, why do I grow dark? Why do I go dark? Why do I drift into this mourning spirit? This downtrodden spirit because of the enemy's oppression. Verse 11, the refrain of hope. Why are you cast down, O soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then there's lament number four. Vindicate me, that is examine and judge me. Not my enemies, don't let them do it. You do it, O Father. Absolve me and declare me just. And the refrain of hope, verses three through five. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God where there is mercy, where there is atonement, where there is fellowship and reconciliation, where there's joy abounding in the presence of God. Reconciled to God with exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God, hope in God, hope in God. Let me ask you, are you thirsty today? Most everyone in here at some point in time gets thirsty. But I would submit that sometimes we misinterpret our thirst we think we're thirsty for more of what the world has to offer. When in fact, our soul is what's thirsty. It's thirsty, spiritual thirst. Despair can have us in its grip. Dissatisfaction and contentment seem to be far away. Is your soul downcast? Look to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to the one who gives water, who gives wine, who gives milk without cost. 
Only he is able to quench. Only he is able to satisfy. Only he can enable you to sing in the dark seasons of the soul. Listen. John wrote in the Revelation, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come out of the desert, come out of the darkness, rest in the all-sufficient and all-supplying son of God, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are, for this wonderful promise that we have, that we look to you, Lord, in our broken, difficult world where thirst abounds, where we're so needy, so desperate, where darkness seems to swallow us up, almost daily. Lord, give us the faith that we need in this moment to turn from the things of this world and to throw ourselves on your mercy seat, on your altar, where we find reconciliation, we find forgiveness, we find nourishment and refreshment that defies anything that we find in this world. I pray this morning that your spirit has already diagnosed what's ailing our hearts and already convinced us that you and you alone are the one who provides the solution. Lord, enable us today to hope in you and only you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.